1: You are listening to The Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Carl Truman. Now, this is a very special podcast because Amy could not be with us for this recording. And so that leaves limitless opportunities for Carl and I to explore all kinds of topics at this point without the interference of a hysterical
2: woman. Am I right? Yes. Well, we should be honest. Of course, we've actually told her we're recording this time tomorrow in order to (laughs) trick her and we're getting in in quickly before she turns up.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. So just kind of let everybody know where we are. No, but Amy, wherever you are, we miss you. I'm sure you're doing something that's very important. Um, Carl, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you seen the, uh, the video of Pope Francis rather angrily slapping the hand <laughs> yes. of that poor pilgrim there in Rome. Oh, yes, yes. That, um, was, that was quite startling to see that. For those who haven't seen it, uh, the Pope is coming along his, you know, and there's a line of people all reaching out to touch the hem of his garment and to touch his hand. And, and one particular, particularly um, uh, enthusiastic uh, pilgrim, a lady, grabs hold of his hand and doesn't let it go. And, and Pope Francis at that point turns into a a scowling, very angry man slaps her hand several times angrily and, and yanks his arm away. And, and the look on his face is like everybody's, you know, crankiest uncle at that point. Um, uh, what 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 do you make of that moment?
2: Well, on one level, I can sort of understand why yep. being grabbed hold of by random people would be quite yes. annoying. It's hardly exceptional for that to happen to the Pope, <laughs> right. uh, and and unusual for this Pope to react in that kind mm-hmm. of way. So, I certainly don't think it's uh, it, it marks him off as one of history's great criminals <laughs> in the way that some have tried to present it on that right. very nuanced medium of Twitter, right. of course. But it was it's a surprising public relations gaffe when well, normally assumes that this Pope's public relations gaffes are going to come on Twitter or something like that. Yes. Uh, for him to do that, he must have had a bad day or, or right. Something. But the look of surprise on the woman's face was, was quite interesting.
1: Well, yeah. She was, she was slapped down by the vicar of Christ. I'm yeah, sure that, that was, was quite It, yeah. it
2: looked childishly petulant from an outside (laughs) spectrum without knowing all that was going on. Right, right. Well, I I agree. I I think that um,
1: I don't fault the guy and I think that that's the point is that at the end of the day, Pope Francis is actually just an ordinary guy. Now, he's got awesome robes and terrific hats when the occasion calls for it, but um, Uh, uh, he's just an ordinary guy.
2: He wasn't slapping her ex cathedra either. I think we need (laughs) to make that clear. So, that was not an infallible move on his part. I think it was a profoundly non-fallible
1: <laughs> that's right and so he did come out and apologize for it because as you said that was not um, ex cathedra abuse no, um, no. it was just ordinary off the chair abuse so and
2: it gives that lady something to tell her grandchildren I mean how cool <laughs> is that because, I was slapped by the Pope <laughs> that's right and, <laughs> and, you know I'd to be slapped by the Pope exactly. you know? I never get close enough to him to be assaulted yeah.
1: right and I and I was slapped by the Pope that was supposed to be the really loving one you know <laughs> yes. that's the, what do you have to do, you know, to make yeah. the loving Pope mad at you? Anyway, okay, well, I just, I, 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 I thought that, uh, that that could be uh, an interesting question I need to ask you. Of course, in evangelicalism, um, we don't have Popes. We don't have leaders. Um, we don't have anybody, you know, people that are that are held up too high to where they're beyond any real accountability, do we?
2: Yeah, well, of course, that's one of the <laughs> things that, you know, Philip Schaff, the great 19th yes. century Presbyterian theologian says, he says, the real problem and the real scandal in the Christian world is not the Pope in Rome
3: mm-hmm.
2: as it is the myriad of little Popes that Protestantism has created for itself. Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: And, and the big that-
2: difference, of course, between our Popes and the Pope at Rome is the Pope at Rome is corralled and controlled by <laughs> rules and regulations <laughs> and, yeah. and formal channels of authority. Yeah. Popes in Protestantism can pretty much do their own
1: thing. <laughs> yeah, they do. I remember um, I, I read a book a couple of years ago about um, J. Frank Norris, um, oh, the, uh, yes. the, 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 the Baptist leader uh, down in Texas. Uh, this has been in the 1910s and 20s. He was yeah. the pastor of, of the biggest church in America. Was he
2: the guy who shot somebody? Uh,
1: yeah, he, he <laughs> shot and killed a man in his office. Oh, yes. And so, uh, yeah. So, but, but that particular kind of Baptist polity, I, I believe, allowed for that. So, well, I, I was thinking uh, about this whole issue of evangelical popes, because now, uh, as we record this, it's just the day after New Year's Day. And so it's 2020, although technically not the start of a new decade. Nevertheless, uh, 2020 is, is going to be a monumental year. And the reason I know this is going to be a monumental year because according to James McDonald's website, James McDonald, who was recently fired from Harvest Bible Chapel and uh, declared unfit for ministry by the elders there, James McDonald has publicly announced that uh, he will be uh, preaching again starting this year, and that he and his wife are are feverishly working on getting all of uh, all of his past. Sermon audio over the years up and available on their new website so that people can continue to benefit from his ministry. And the question that comes to mind there, obvious, well, I think a lot of questions come to mind, but one of them is what does it take for a guy who's been so publicly discredited um, by his own words, his own behavior, some of it caught on tape? What does it take for that guy to finally just go away? Um, if, 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 if not scandalous yeah. behavior, why this persisting? And, and of course, p- part of the answer to that is because there's still plenty of people ready and willing to enthusiastically follow him. Yeah. What does that say about us as evangelicals, about the movement in general, that we are so eager and needy to have the well-known, you know, the celebrity? What does that say about us?
2: Well, I mean, I think a couple of comments in order just as a preliminary observation. One, this is not a new problem. We, no. we see it even in the New Testament where you know, Peter has to warn people not to mm. hold him in too high regard, that, mm. that it's really Jesus working through him. It's not Peter. Uh, and we also have Paul's Corinthian correspondence, particularly First Corinthians chapter 1, that I'm persuaded is not uh, criticizing denominational factionalism. It, yes. it, it's critiquing celebrity or personality factionalism. So this is not a new problem. I, I do think that in, our, in, in this present age and also in Western culture, perhaps particularly in America, but it's also coming, I think, to other uh, aspects of, of the world as well, particularly Britain, Europe, parts of Africa, uh, the, the focus on the big personality is both more possible today because of the internet age when it's it's possible to to build a platform and project an image where you, you're so say talking about the gospel but actually you're really promoting yourself. It's very mm-hmm. easy to do that in this technological age. And it's something that plays to that that basic human, sinful human desire, mm-hmm. I think, to to place trust in the immediate person rather right. than the God for whom the immediate person is, is right. speaking. So we live at a time when it's not a new sin, but the potential for this sin being much bigger and more damaging mm-hmm. is much greater today. Mm-hmm. To be wrapped up in the Corinthian factionalism, you've got to be in Corinth. Right Today, you could be in Amsterdam or yeah. Murmansk mm-hmm. or Belgrade or Alaska right. and be involved in, in the same factionalism. Mm-hmm. And so
1: that makes these scandals much more damaging because of the reach of these men and because of the publicity of their behavior. And so the harm that it does to believers and non-believers alike is amplified. The, the Houston Chronicle just this past year ran a, a series of six groundbreaking articles that got um, international attention, exposing sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches and it was heartbreaking and I'm not singling out Southern Baptist churches here because it's a problem in evangelicalism and as evangelicals, and I'm speaking in the broadest sense, uh, you know, not, you know, Protestant, non-Roman Catholic people who generally believe and hold to the biblical gospel. Um, it's our problem every bit as much it seems now as it has been the problem of the Roman Catholic church. Do you think that's accurate?
2: Oh, yeah. I think the, the difference between Protestantism and the Roman Catholic Church is we're far more fragmented. I make mm-hmm. that just as an observation, not as a criticism, but as an observation, right. which means that the, the potential for scandalous cover-ups and the potential for exposing cover-ups and scandals is that much more fragmented mm-hmm. as well. So it's, it's interesting that the big one in the US last year was the Southern Baptist Convention because that right. is the single biggest Protestant body. Right you know, the, the Bible church at the corner of your street may well have an abusive pastor, mm-hmm. but it's unlikely to make the front page of the Boston Globe or the Houston Chronicle, et etc., et cetera, unless it's a, a really big and egregious mm-hmm. uh, kind of abuse that's gone on there. Yeah. So I think Protestantism is the beneficiary, uh, if I can put it in, in that sort of term, right. is the, sort of the beneficiary of its fragmentation. We're, we're more difficult to, to nail as a, as a single body than the Roman Catholic Church. But now that the Roman Catholic Church, I won't say the scandal is, is winding down, but it's, it's hard to see that the scandal can be any more publicized uh, and prosecuted right. than it already is being. I think the tension will shift to Protestantism, and right. it will start with the big boys, it will start with the large seminaries, it will start with the large denominations, and it will slowly but surely work its way through everybody. Yeah. And there is no denomination, I suspect, on the face of this earth that is not touched by this in some way, and is not at some level vulnerable to the kind of credible accusations that have been made against the Southern Baptist Convention and the Roman Catholic Church. Right. And
1: now we're seeing this with some very scandalous news coming out of the UK oh, among, yeah. among a conservative evangelical wing yeah. of the Church of England. And, and to put that in perspective, for our American listeners, that the evangelical wing of the Church of England has been extraordinarily influential over the years in worldwide Christianity. I mean, if you go back, for instance, to the 1970s and 80s, where evangelicalism uh, became the dominant movement in the United States. A, a big portion of the of the theological heartbeat of that movement were conservative Church of England evangelicals. You know, you look at the publishing house of Inner Varsity Press in the nineteen seventies and eighties. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of of, of men who are well-known American evangelical leaders who, who were converted under the ministries of these men or, or began reading their books as teenagers or college students back in the 70s and 80s. The, the influence of conservative Church of England evangelicals on American evangelicalism, I think would be hard to overestimate. I, I just say that to put that in a little bit of a historical context as to some of the, the stuff that's just now happening over there. Um, shed a little bit of light on that.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's really the scandal that's surrounding this uh, man called Jonathan Fletcher, who you know was like an Anglican evangelical pope. Well, uh, these mm-hmm. because it's 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 England rather than America, there are certain peculiarities that, that that feed into this, and one of them is it's Anglican evangelicalism has also been dominated by the alumni of what these Ewan Minster camps or Bash camps that were. Camps for schoolboys from the most elite private schools in the country. They were groomed for leadership mm-hmm. in the Anglican Church. So, what you have in Anglican evangelicalism is a, a body, even within the body, that really controls things. And the, the Bash campers uh, are you know, powerful forces at St. Helens, Bishop Gate, the big evangelical mm-hmm. Anglican church in, in the centre of London, the Proclamation Trust and uh, the Evangelical Ministry Assembly, and uh, the Corn Hill Training Scheme. Mm. There are a lot of what we might describe as the central and most influential British evangelical organizations are run by a small elite of what we call public school boys. That, uh, and public school, of course, means very private in right. the elite public school boys. They're self-referential, self-regulating, and accountable to nobody. And it's, uh, I've been watching this story develop over several years because a man called John Smith, who was a barrister, an elite lawyer in the UK, uh, fled the country because of allegations of, uh, of beating of young boys, peculiarly yeah. sort of English vice, this, yeah. this caning of young boys. Private Eye, one of the magazines I su- I've subscribed to since I was a teenager, which is a combination of satire and investigative journalism, was onto the Smith case for some years. Smith eventually fled the country and died before he could be prosecuted. But anybody who knows how the the upper-class evangelical Anglican world operates in England would know that Smith could not have been doing what he did without the cooperation and the knowledge of other people. And what's happened, of course, is that now we know that Smith was not the only person engaging this. Jonathan Fletcher was as well. Mm. And if Jonathan Fletcher was involved, uh, not only do you have one of the most powerful men in, in British evangelicalism involved, and he was the son of a cabinet minister, by the way. We're talking mm. real elite here. Right. Uh, not only do you have a, a, one of the most powerful men in British evangelicalism involved, one has to assume that a lot more are involved, uh, both in the abusive activities and quite probably in the cover-up as well. And I I suspect a lot more is going to be emerging in the next six to 12 months about this. And the disaster for Britain on this front is that in the the US, there are numerous big organizations. You have Ligonier, you have Gospel Coalition, you have Mm -hmm. T4G, you have Harvest, you've got uh, James McDonald's. Yeah. For a group of churches, you have a, a number of, of, of big, influential evangelical organisations, and right. if, if one of them falls or collapses due to scandal, it's not necessarily going to take down the others because mm-hmm. there a lot of them. There are uh, overlaps, but basically separate entities. Right. In England, they all track back to the same bunch of Ewan Minster Bash Camp Boys. Yeah. And if if those guys fall, everything falls. I think this is is a potential catastrophe for British evangelicalism, and one that's been a long time coming. These these men have been accountable to nobody. Lloyd-Jones had their number. Martin Mm -hmm. Lloyd-Jones had no time for the anti-doctrinal, upper-class public school boys who tried to run the show. Jim Packer, one of the reasons why Packer went to Canada was there was no place for a grammar school boy in this kind of culture. He was an outsider. Thankfully so. Right. Uh, this is very, very, very serious and it you know, plays into this, this culture where, to, to quote, uh, I've forgotten who it was who said it about the banks, but you end up with somebody who's considered too big to fail. Right. So everybody starts to cover up for them hmm. and everybody ultimately gets pulled down with right. them at that
1: point. And I think we're seeing that and have been seeing that too big to fail principle happening in American evangelicalism as well. You know, the story of, of James McDonald, as long as we've mentioned him, the story of James McDonald is a man who for years has had people covering up for him, um, elders, other associates. Uh, we, we saw the same thing with Mark Driscoll. Um, the, these were men who were too big to fail. And so you had people who had the goods on them. You had people who could, point the finger of Nathan at them and say, you are the man. Um, and and perhaps the few that would try to do that would be put away because they don't matter as much as the big man. This is the man with the ministry. This is the man who's writing the books and who is, who is attracting all these people to this church.
2: And I, I wrote stuff about McDonald and Driscoll. Yeah. And did anybody pay any attention? No. What happened no. was one of the big wigs calls me at home right. And hauls me over the coals, right? For being an—I up- mean, I was in my mid forties at the yes. time, and vice president of Westminster. Right. But basically, called me out for being a young upstart and told me to mind my own business. Exactly. Uh, y- you know,
1: it's exactly.
2: It's the and networks behind the scenes that are so vicious,
1: right? And you, and, and you know, ha- have, having known you now for a while, you may or may not have gotten a phone call one time from James McDonald himself, correct?
2: I can, you, to, to, quote, uh, to quote the uh, House of Cards, uh, you might say that. I could possibly comment. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have one of those, uh, superficially friendly, but with a subtext of, we know where your children go to school.
1: <laughs> right, right. So, so you, know, you know personally, and not just from that incident, but from a couple of incidents of what happens when somebody points out a troubling flaw, not a trifling thing, but a truly, genuinely troubling flaw within this kind of collection of leaders. Um, The wagons are circled, uh, the rifles are aimed outwards, and you or your employer or both are going to start getting phone calls.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that very well indeed. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting because I I think a lot of the time people tend to think of money. It's all about money. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more complicated than that. Money right. can be involved. I actually think platform, I think mm-hmm. the buzz people get from being a big yes. shot from being able to throw their weight around. Yes. That's a big factor in this yeah. too. And of course that means that you can get exactly the same thing happening on a smaller, but just as damaging scale right. in the 20 member church sure. at the corner of your street, mm-hmm. uh, we, we love our petty power and our influence as sinful right. human beings. And we, we turn very quickly on anyone who we feel is threatening that.
1: Yes. You know, it's interesting. I, I've, I've, I've read two biographies on Jim Jones of, of Jonestown. You're, you're in, to Jim in, Jones
2: in, what Bob Godfrey is to Amy Semple McPherson. <laughs> that's right. I'm the Jim, the, Jones, I'm the,
1: I'm the Jim, <laughs> Jim Jones authority. But, and this is an extreme example. However, it makes the point. One of the things that, that has astonished people that have studied Jim Jones was that he did not seem to be motivated by money. He lived a very Spartan existence. He typically got his clothes from a second-hand shop. Um, what, what was the aphrodisiac for Jones was the power in the platform. Right. Right. And, and, and here was a guy, again, who would live in a jungle in Guyana in one of the most inhospitable environments on the planet, you know, in squalor. So long as he kept his, his platform and his control. And, and, I, but the point being, yeah, it doesn't have to be about standing before 9,000 people. It can be, it can be a pastor in a church of 30 so long as, as, as that is feeding something unhealthy in him. You know, I'm a pastor. You, you have served as a pastor. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on, on everybody who is a pastor. I, I would dare say that the vast majority of evangelical pastors are not predators But, but the problem is, is that ministry can and does attract certain people that aren't good. And, Mm. and one of the things we see with some of these men that we've mentioned is that ministry can provide a tremendous feeling of power, um, If, if we're not careful.
2: Yeah. If you're a narcissist and mm. don't want to put in the hard work to be a surgeon or a lawyer, right. being a pastor is actually <laughs> not a bad choice of profession. Um, <laughs> so you know, let's that, get that out there. Yeah, <laughs> narcissist uh, that, is not, that is not to damn 99% of pastors out there, <laughs> right. but it is to say that there is evidence to suggest mm-hmm. that, pastoral ministry does attract more than its fair share of of people who are not in it for the right reasons. Yeah, And I noticed this at seminary among some students. The vast majority of students were really good guys. Yep. Uh, But every now and then you'd come across a student and they're there because they think they're God's gift. Mm -hmm. And like there's God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then there's them. Right. Uh, And that's very, very worrying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I want to encourage churches, listen, love, love your pastor, be kind to him. If you have a faithful pastor, um, encourage him. Um, his work can be exhausting spiritually and, and emotionally, so care for him, love him. But make sure your pastor also has accountability and he understands that he is replaceable. If he acts like he is irreplaceable, if he acts like access to his teaching is the be-all and end-all of the mission of the church, then you have a problem.
2: Yeah, yeah. Here's a question for you, Todd, Mm -hmm. just to to bring this back to, I I think the way this may well cut into many people's lives is is as follows. When I look back on my young Christian days now, so many of the men, both the, the local guys and the big names out there, that, that I admired and I learned from have mm-hmm. ended up as train wrecks for one yeah. reason or another. Yeah. Um, this may sound odd, but I, I'm inclined to say I, I'm, I'm glad that, that many of these train wrecks happened after I'd been a Christian for many years because I felt I'd got the categories to to handle it, yeah. but even so, the latest thing in the UK. This is show, you know this this will involve friends I was at college with. It will involve men I've shared platforms with, men whose books I've read, and it's hard to get my head around it. What about the younger Christian? Well, mm-hmm. the Christian who says, you know, these men are just hypocrites.
3: Mm-hmm. These
2: men are just in it for whether it's money, sex, power, whatever. They're just in it for what they can get out of it. Yeah. It's a tribal power thing. It's nothing to do with the truth. I'm walking away from the faith. Or perhaps uh, a more sort of subtle response would be not I'm walking away from the faith, but I'm walking away from the church. I'm just going to read my Bible, love Jesus, pray, and and, and I'm just going to do it that way. How do you counsel somebody like that? Because it seems to me on a human level, I can absolutely see where those people are coming from.
1: I absolutely can. Yeah. And I think, I mean, so I have talked to numerous people about this even earlier this morning. I was at my office and was uh, visiting with um, a member of our church who had a, who was just re- recounting to me conversations with one of their children. Who's an unbeliever, an adult, um, you know, young adult unbeliever. And uh, he was there at their home and they had a wonderful visit, but he really wanted to talk about this, about about why he's not a believer. And and he rooted so much of his reasons in being an unbeliever in the hypocrisy of the church. Um, the, the kinds of things you see in the headlines about uh, pastors and, and Christian leaders. And that's, you know, that's why I don't need the church. That's why I don't need God, etc. And um and so uh, she and I just talked about that some today. And one of the things that I said to her is, first of all, uh, typically my first response when I have that conversation is, basically what you just said, Carl, which is, I understand that. I understand that impulse to say you have bad people in your midst. You have bad people in your leadership. It's not worth it. I understand that impulse, but that's, but at the end of the day, that that's, that's a really dangerous kind of impulse because we don't seem to do that with any other sphere. We don't do that with medical care or lawyers or mechanics or, or architects or anybody else. The fact is the church like any other institution in this fallen world is going to attract some bad people. And and we have to know that and we have to be prepared emotionally and spiritually for when the fall happens, because it's going to happen. It can't help from happening. And so on the one hand, I I would encourage people to say, talk to that person about uh, the reality of sin, the universality of sin and how it affects people. Even uh, with, with, with within the church, I would also say that there's no better place for hypocrites than the church now if a hypocrite is going to refuse to repent of their hypocrisy then then the church has discipline but um, the fact is on on a smaller level none of us fully live up to the profession of our lips and uh and while there are capital h hypocrites and small h hypocrites if that makes sense um the fact is um all of us at least have times when when we don't live up to our confession but I, but i would also say that that the failures of its human members does not render the church any less uh, relevant than she has always been god in his wisdom has appointed his church to be his glory in the world to be uh, his people his body and the means by which he brings salvation to sinners uh, through the ordinary means of grace is the means that he's given his church to sanctify his people the great commission is something he's given to his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we just have to know along the way that the church is a soft target for bad people. We believe in grace. We believe in forgiveness. We preach a message where we say, come. If you're, if you're on the outside, come. If you're marginalized, come. If you're a sinner, come. And among the people who are going to come are people whose, whose lives are deeply, deeply disordered. And that's going to cause a mess sometimes.
2: Well, thanks for that, Todd. That was a very fulsome answer. And I think points us, of course, back to perhaps a concluding comment, the importance of the church. Particularly, I think the importance of the local church. The, yes. the higher up in the church you go, the more denominational you think, in any denomination, probably the more disillusioned you're going to become. Yes. But you know, My appeal to all of our listeners would be focus on your local church. Be a loyal, hardworking member of your local church. Encourage your pastor. Be involved in the life of your local church. Uh, And that's why this week's giveaway is going to be Michael Horton's wonderful little book, Ordinary which I think helps refocus our minds upon the, the ordinary ways of Christian discipleship, the ordinary nature of the Christian life connected to the local church. And please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, because you'll have a chance there to enter to win a copy of Michael Horton's book. And if you've enjoyed this podcast without Amy... Uh, feel free to make a donation. If we see a huge spike in donations this week, then we will know what hard and difficult personnel decisions we need make early in the year. In the meantime, uh, let's play out to, I think, a most appropriate song given Amy's absence. <laughs>
3: Oh my
1: How's the illness, Todd? <clears throat> I right, Well, today's better because I'm not having a coughing fit every oh, okay. thir- 30 seconds. Yeah, but, Katrina uh, was
2: so merciless when you texted me and said, I got flu. And she said, he, he we- texted you that. And I said, yeah. He said, if he can still text, it's man flu. It is. Really <laughs> <right?"
3: laughs> now, what do you say if we form a new club and call it the Human Woman Hairs Club? <laughs>